2: Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books and Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Sean Shu, author of The Smell of Risk, Environmental Disparities and Olfactory Aesthetics, published this year by NYU Press. Dr. Shu, welcome to the show.
3: Thanks for having me, Stentor.
2: To start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book.
3: Okay, so um, I'm a professor of English at the University of California, Davis. I'm also affiliated with the Geography graduate group here. Um, I'm also an Asian American settler scholar with asthma who, when I started writing the book, was living in Oakland. Um, on unceded land of the Oloné people, and you know, I've been working at Davis on unceded land of the Padwin people. Um, I've been living amid vast disparities in access to healthy air, um, and amid you know, increasingly catastrophic wildfire, um, wildfires and the smoke associated with them. I was trained in American literature, focusing mostly on the 19th century at UC Berkeley, where I wrote a dissertation on spatial scale in 19th century literary genres. Since then, my work has shifted more towards literary and cultural engagements with environmental injustice and with the ways that geographic arrangements maintain um, and produce racial inequalities. So, um, for example, recently, I taught a class called Geographies of Risk, where we thought with groundbreaking work on toxics by scholars like Stacey Alimo, Rob Nixon, and Mel Chen. Um, And so reading in, you know, these scholars and in these fields of environmental humanities and racial geographies um, more broadly has really primed me, I think, to be attentive to smell as a medium of environmental risk. Um, So that's the intellectual background for the book. But the truth is I sort of stumbled upon this project when I was um, doing some research for a book I thought I was going to be writing about 19th century naturalist novels. Um, So books by authors like Frank Norris, Upton Sinclair, and Jack London, where urban spaces get into and transform the bodies of characters. Um, I noticed that some of the most interesting scenes where this was happening involved encounters with air, often toxic air, and that these moments also really prominently and interestingly featured the sense of smell. So I ended up like writing an article about that. And around the same time, I came across an article in a newspaper about olfactory art, um, which, and there's a whole, like there are a lot of articles like this where they kind of are tongue in cheek and sensationalistic when they talk about olfactory art, because I think that there's just a kind of discomfort around how to think about smell as a material of art. And I, I just realized that smell was this, um, and, and that olfactory art was a great form for thinking about how air gets into people's bodies and that that could be part of the same project as the naturalism chapter. So I remember kind of being on the fence between writing the book I thought I was gonna write on literary naturalism and writing a book about smell and just deciding that the smell book was gonna push me into engaging with different fields, different kinds of conversations, and it just seemed like it was going to be a very different kind of challenge and learning experience. So that's the route I took. And yeah, I guess there's a some kind of lesson there about serendipity in the research project and just, you know, shifting a project to follow what feels most generative.
2: Yeah, I think that's a the general outlines of that story are, are a pretty common one that you kind of stumble into something interesting when you thought you were gonna be doing something else, and then you kind of, you know, retcon a sort of Intellectual background to it because oh, now this is the thing that you're really engaged with, right? So in the, the introduction to your book, you have this great phrase the capitalism's unevenly distributed atmosphere So I think that kind of captures some of what you're you're doing in this book So could you elaborate on that phrase in terms of you know what it means and how you're exploring this idea throughout the book?
3: Yeah, so I mean, I think broadly that that term is meant to capture the atmospheric kind of aspects of environmental injustice, right? So the way that racial capitalism has kind of always involved exposing more vulnerable populations, racialized populations to um, insalubrious environments, environments that either intentionally or unintentionally um, resulted in, you know, premature deaths and various forms of debilitation, um, industrial production. So dirty industries would be one common kind of example of this or the siding of um, things like freeways, incinerators, toxic dumps, but also urban planning, you know, architecture and ventilation in you know, Um, apartment buildings and things like this right so in order to expand capitalism has always just kind of relied on this production of differential atmospheres or unevenly distributed atmospheres Um, and the the kind of related term that i use to link this to smell is differential deodorization right so that's that's meant to really kind of foreground how deodorization, modernization wasn't just a process of odor eradication and, you know, constantly improving hygiene, um, which is how it's often framed, but rather as a process of moving bad air and those sources of bad air that I was talking about um, around to less powerful populations, more vulnerable places, right? Um, And... Yeah, so differential deodorization, I think, um, helps me to get at smell in in a way that I think centers the experiences of communities of color, um, of BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, authors, and artists, and critics, um, in order to kind of highlight the ways that smell is experienced kind of from below, right, that they're from the populations who have not experienced deodorization as this process that has increased, you know, access to clean air and health and so forth.
2: Yeah, and I really like the way that you're looking at both like the production of smells and the production of you know, non-smells with the, this deodorization, and looking at how both of those are being done in this this uneven or unequal kind of way. Um, and so I wanted to kind of, then the next thing I guess I'm, I want to ask is about the way that these smells or lack of smells get culturally coded, because you talk about these smells aren't just, like, a smell isn't just, like, intrinsically a bad smell or a good smell, and the meanings of these smells uh, are are generated through social processes.
3: Great, thanks. So, yeah, I think that smell is, it's partly really complicated and interesting to work with and difficult um, because it's always both cultural and chemical at the same time, right? So um, in looking at olfactory discourse and literature, I really am able to see how language and narrative kind of prime the way that people perceive smells, right? And can sometimes kind of push back against the idea of Certain smells as you know, dirty or foreign or unhealthy, um, but can also often reinforce those senses. Um, it's also just the case that often smells that are perceived as you know unhealthy don't correlate with smells that are unpleasant, right? So, I think it, you know, there's there are a lot of instances of correlation, and I think these narratives do tend to focus on. Smells, where you know whether whether it's the smell itself that is damaging individuals, or the smells a sign that there are other things in the air that are a cause of damage. Smell is a kind of index of risk, right? Um, it, it indicates the presence of risky air. But but I do think that um, the uncertainty aspect of olfactory experience, the way in which Um, There's that kind of lack of correlation I was talking about leads to some really interesting moments in the literature and the kind of cultural production. Right. So one one example of this would be the um, map of the smells of Chinatown that I look at at the beginning of um, chapter four, where you know, these smells that are generally viewed as toxic and experienced as toxic, such as um, garbage, I think uh, engine or oil-like smells and things like this are juxtaposed with the smell of five-spice powder, right, or of drying fish, um, which then by association become viewed as toxic when in fact they might just be unpleasant to certain people. Um so, so yeah, I think looking at that really, right. um, I think helps to. Let's see, I think I got a little bit lost there. So I think that um, literature and art then help to kind of recode sometimes how how we how we experience these smells that are you know have been framed as um, poisonous, toxic, hazardous. Um, if, to just kind of like go towards the end of that chapter, Anika Yi's work, right, in Life is Cheap, is really kind, kind of exposing visitors without prejudgment to the smells of bacteria sourced from New York's Chinatown and Koreatown, right? and. I think it it kind of creates a more contemplative environment for engaging with the smell, for inhaling it, taking it in, um, and then also for looking at um, installations that are kind of diorama-like and really quite stunning, right? One of which is uh, composed of bacterial cultures that are, you know, those very bacteria that one has just breathed in. So I think it kind of... um, shifts how the smells of Chinatown and Koreatown bacteria might be experienced by um, gallery visitors.
2: Yeah. Uh, So kind of jumping off from some of the stuff that you said there, you're doing a good job of like setting up my next question without realizing it uh, in some of your responses. Um, That you also talk about the way that smell is on the one hand it's really sort of visceral way that people are directly experiencing some of the, the atmospheric conditions that they're being subjected to but then on the other hand you've got this downplaying of smell as being you know subjective by kind of you know scientific analysis and philosophers and so forth um and so could you talk a bit about that that tension between the sort of visceral and the subjective uh, kind of dimensions of smell and kind of who uh, who pays attention to smell and takes smell seriously in these kind of scenarios?
3: Yeah. Thanks. So I think that th- this kind of downplaying of smell in the western philosophical and aesthetic tradition um, I trace back to Kant, as many other scholars have, right? And I, one of the kind of uh, foundational moments for my project was realizing that the the things that have made smell marginal within the Western kind of tradition of aesthetic thinking um, are things like subjectivity, immersivity, right or immersiveness, um, uncertainty, being very difficult to describe, and then this kind of biochemical crossing of bodily boundaries, right? So thinking about it in terms of Stacey Alimo's concept of transcorporeality. Um, Smell and breathing are a way of, like, constantly exchanging matter with the air around us and, you know, therefore kind of just shot through with uncertainty about what the effects of those might or might not be. So these these all seem like really... um, fascinating qualities of smell, especially when we think about environmental risk, right? So the different, you know, the kind of um, just pervasiveness of uncertainty that we negotiate every day, right? Think about like COVID or Ulrich Beck's work, right? Like just really um, generative work on risk society comes to mind there as well. Um, So I I turn to, you know, authors, writers, critics who are really um, much more writing from positions that center the knowledge of people who are exposed to risk, right? So um, naturalist authors, for example, are really writing about people who are kind of down and out, populations that are often framed, often kind of like below middle class, right? Um, or people who have kind of fallen from middle-class status and that process of falling. In the case of one of the novels, I talk about Vandover and the Brute. Um, What else? There's uh, people with environmental illness um, or multiple chemical sensitivity, right? Um, For whom hyperosmia um, or a kind of uh, really heightened sense of smell is a common symptom um, they use smell and olfactory knowledge in very different ways right so whether it's subjective or not the fact that certain substances in the air correlate with experiences of illness debilitation um, and just really unpleasant embodied experiences are you know they are to be avoided right so so people with environmental illness use their sense of smell, um, often their heightened sense of smell, to kind of analyze at the air around them constantly as they move through it, as as it changes day to day. Um, smell becomes a kind of really important tool there of, well, of survival, right, and of negotiating everyday atmospheres. But on a broader community level, I think smell in in a lot of these works so works by um writers of color so I'd like uh edith eaton who i talk about in the chapter on um what i call atmo orientalism or chester himes and um, Rudolf fisher african-american authors so i talk about in the chapter about detective fiction I I would say that for them, smell is, among other things, has a capacity to operate as a kind of citizen science, right? And certainly for people with um, chemical sensitivity, um, that it's a kind of gathering of evidence about everyday environments that can then be used not only to kind of change how one negotiates those environments, but also to generate knowledge about the sources of those atmospheric um, particulates that are causing those kinds of responses. Um, Indigenous people um, who I I write about in chapter five, right? so I write about uh, the Samoan author, Albert Wendt, um, the Kanaka Maoli or indigenous Hawaiian author, Hau'nani K. Trask and the Potawatomi plant biologist and writer Robin Wall Kimmerer, um, they're also very much grounded in traditions of knowledge that do not marginalize smell, right? So traditions that take smell quite seriously as a mode of environmental, like not just knowledge, but kind of reciprocal recognition, the way that um, some of the scholars I look at there, like Vanessa Watts um, and, Robin, and Kimmerer herself, um, talk about the way that, like, olfactory communication, interspecies olfactory communication, can work. Right, that that it's a mode of kind of knowing that's a recognition of a material relationship that entails certain kinds of responsibilities. Um, so, so I I try to kind of um, follow those authors. Um, kind of framings of smell, in part because they really push back against traditions of deodorization, right, that not only try to expunge, you know, noxious smells in um, public space, albeit only in certain public spaces, but those traditions also devalue smell as as a kind of legitimate tool or medium of of knowledge and of negotiating the world.
2: Okay, so in the, the course of that answer, you mentioned your chapter on Atmo Orientalism, and I'm imagining some of our listeners kind of perking up, oh, what's that? Uh, so uh, could you elaborate a little bit on that, that term, that concept, what you mean by Atmo Orientalism? Um,
3: yeah, and I'm sorry to just drop a you know, um, randomly invented term in there, but Atmo Orientalism um, is a term that I coin to emphasize the way in which, like Orientalism, right, which is we could just gloss as in part, um, let's see, a kind of like discursive and perceptual racialization of Asiatic bodies, um, right which often gets framed in ways that are um, visual, right? Or about language, the way people speak, the way they look, uh, bodily phenotypes, and things like this. Um, I, I wanna focus instead, in that, or I do focus instead in that chapter on um, the racialization of Asian air, right? So thinking about Asian immigrants not just as different bodies, but as inhabiting a different way of kind of relating to the atmosphere. Um, So having lower standards of atmospheric hygiene, um, Bancroft, whose first name I don't remember, um, but uh, the kind of ethnologist, Nineteenth-century ethnologist Bancroft suggested that Asiatics had, like, biologically different, anatomically different lungs, right, to be able to kind of survive in the kinds of, like, awful air that um, they were discursively associated with, whether it was um in kind of like conditions of like living conditions right so um one of my examples of this is the san francisco cubic air ordinance um i think 1875 which or sorry not 1875 i have the date wrong but uh late 19th century cubic air ordinance which uh basically restricted the number of bodies in a living space based on the kind of like amount of cubic kind of square footage cubic footage of air um in in that dwelling right and it was um pretty much like discriminatorily you enforced against the chinese alone right even though it was violated throughout the city of san francisco um And Chinese were pulled out of these dwellings because, you know, the air was said to be unsafe, uh, a source of potentially um, transmissible diseases and and so forth. So so this is one way of kind of really racializing Chinese immigrants as as having a kind of deviant relationship to the air. Right. But I trace this discourse throughout, you know, fiction. So Fu Manchu's use of poison gases um representations of you know Chinese opium dens and just of like Chinese dwellings more generally in in these kind of like Chinatown tour genres right or tenement tours where they go into a building and talk about the completely unbreathable air or at least unbreathable to kind of like white visitors right um and then i trace this discourse all the way up to pretty recent things right so um there was a a series of complaints and a suit against the Sriracha sauce, the hot sauce factory um, in, I think Century City or Culver City, I'm forgetting which, um, but that that you know again kind of like singled out these kind of Asiatic smells as particularly toxic um, or risky. Um, I think I mean clearly if I had had. Um, If the timing were different, I would have had quite a bit to say about COVID, right? And the racialization of Asian air that has like really been revivified um, in really aggressive terms, right? Where, you know, somebody was sprayed with Febreze air freshener um, in in public somewhere. And yeah, I mean, the kind of like anti-Asian assaults are largely, or at least like, partly um, a result of discourses mostly originating from white folks, um, including Trump, right, that associate Asian people or people who appear to be Asian with with bad and diseased air and, and therefore try to blame the pandemic on the kind of exhalations of Chinese people, right, rather than on, say, the kind of, like, global... Arrangements of commodity chains and labor and environmental regulations that um, have arranged for China to be a place that is producing a lot of goods for consumption in the West, right? So we could actually look at a lot of China's dirty air. Um, and here I'm drawing on the work of my colleagues, uh, Michael Zizer and Julie Z. Um, China's dirty air as a kind of like byproduct of Western consumption. So I don't know if that yeah. fully answered the question.
2: No, that was that was great. There's a, a lot of interesting stuff there, and you know, you drew some of those connections to the COVID nineteen pandemic. And I think that's kind of a that was kind of a like exercise for the reader that I was doing as I was going through the book was thinking about how you might apply some of this stuff to uh, the COVID situation because there are a lot of those kinds of uh, connections between what you're working on and what we've all experienced over the last year and a half or so.
0: This episode is brought to you by Saks.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, To take your retail business to the next level today that's shopify.com system
2: yeah i want to now ask about some of the materials that you're drawing on for this because you know you've referenced a whole bunch of different things that you analyze you know from novels to art installations to these personal testimonies from people uh just this really broad and kind of eclectic mix of different materials that you're looking at so how was it that you decided on using all these different things? How did you like find this stuff and and decide to bring it together into uh, the basis for this book?
3: Um, let's see. Well, I mean, as, as I was talking about earlier, I started with the literary archive and really thinking about form, right? So aesthetic forms in which smell gets taken seriously as a mode of knowledge and as a kind of legitimate aesthetic medium right and within the largely deodorized tradition of canonical american literature right like there's not there're like a, like some really famous passages involving smell so for example the ambergris chapter in moby dick um, but there's not a whole lot of kind of like what, what you might call olfactory forms. Um, I, I really kind of singled out detective fiction or kind of crime fiction more broadly, right? Um, and literary naturalism as two forms where smell plays a really like central role, at least in many of the works. So detective fiction, I re- um, with, in that case, I'm tracing the kind of figure which isn't always a figure, right? Sometimes it's literalized of the detective's nose. The detective is kind of um, what I argue is originally a version of a bloodhound, right? Like sniffing out deviant bodies in order to kind of individualize crime and eradicate it from urban environments. So the detective is a model of, or as an agent of deodorization in that case. Um, And then the ways in which later detective fiction um, like the black authored works that I mentioned by Rudolf Fisher and Chester Himes really pushed back on that idea, right? By emphasizing infrastructural um, factors in kind of like bad air and in crime. So thinking about crime in infrastructural and environmental terms, right? Or the feminist uh, hard-boiled author, Sarah Paretsky in her novel, Bloodshot, um, doing something along those lines as well. And then I, I kind of connect all of that um, with multiple chemical sensitivity, like write, writings by people with multiple chemical sensitivity, because through this common thread of hyperosmia, right, and of using smell to both to detect um, causes of environmental violence, but also like the way in which this act of, um, what the critic Jesse Oak Taylor calls immersive toxicology, right? Using your own body as a toxicological tool, um, really kind of transforms, intoxicates, and in many cases endangers, um, the breather and the sort of detective figure. So, um, that's detective fiction, literary naturalism. I've already talked about it a little bit, so I won't go on too much about it. But that that that's a, another genre that has long been stigmatized um, for as a genre that's like tactlessly stinky, right? So um, it's just kind of like really interested in the animal senses, the animal side of the human, um, and in in kind of relationships with the environment and with setting that. Um, I, are criticized often for detracting from the idea of human agency, right? So he, um, it's been critiqued as environmentally determinist and things like this. But I, I'd suggest partly that smell um, is it's, it's it has a kind of determinist tendency, but because smells' effects are indeterminate and are so rife with uncertainty, I think it doesn't lead to kind of like completely closed off account. Um, And then I connect that with um, what I call neo-naturalist works that use smell to kind of think through and stage environmental justice issues, right? So um, one prime example would be Elena Maria Mate's novels um, Under the Feet of Jesus, which is about migrant farm workers in central California, mostly Latinx um, living among everyday pesticide exposures and um, their dogs came with them, which is about, again, mostly Latinx youth growing up in East Los Angeles during the peak decades of freeway construction, right? So, I mean, in both those cases, I'm interested partly as, you know, someone trained in the 19th century who has become really kind of like, through my teaching and research, really interested in contemporary BIPOC literature um, and also in environmental um, humanities kinds of like issues. Um, I was interested in kind of tracking formal threads that connect 19th century work with, you know, more contemporary writings um, produced in a period where where environmental justice was a kind of explicit um, movement, concern, and had already been kind of like largely theorized, right, so that these pre-existing formal trends could be realized in different ways. Um, the third form that I look at is um, olfactory art, and that's another one that, you know, as, as I said, has has often been stigmatized, right, um, or kind of like marginalized as something that couldn't possibly be serious, um a curator friend of mine told me that olfactory art is a curator's nightmare right like trying to figure out how to display works that smell to audiences who might not appreciate all appreciate and you know some of whom may actually be put in danger by smells um and then also among works of art that could be compromised in various ways by olfactory element like odorants in the air Um, and trying to prevent intermingling of smells and all of this, right? So it really kind of like um, brought out for me how much the Western art museum or gallery is premised on ideas of deodorization and of kind of a discrete contemplative viewing body. Um, So olfactory art, I think, like erupts into galleries and museum environments in ways that like really just like from the get-go violate these assumptions and raise uh, like really interesting questions often involving environmental risk, right? So I wanted to kind of like um, provide like a kind of theoretical basis that's environmental risk oriented um, for thinking about olfactory art. And yeah, so those are like the, the three first chapters, thinking about aesthetic forms. And then the Last two chapters, I wanted to really kind of center problems of racialization because, you know, there's been a lot of scholarship done already on um, smell as, as a tool and a kind of especially olfactory discourse as a tool of racial differentiation. But I wanted to think a little bit more about like how it's happening not only on discursive levels, but also on material levels. And also to think about how BIPOC authors, um, so in the cases of those chapters, Asian diasporic authors and indigenous authors um, and artists have, how they've kind of not only critiqued those discourses, racializing discourses, but also um, attempted to kind of move beyond them, right? So the way that Anika Yee Creates spaces of olfactory intimacy, whereas I was saying earlier, um, visitors, or um, to use the term that I borrow from the anthropologist Tim Choi, breathers, right? So instead of viewers, the breathers of that artwork. Um, kind of engage in this intimacy with the bacteria that are at the heart of the exhibit um, in ways that invite a different kind of contemplation, right? So it's not a visual contemplation, but just kind of like, what is this doing to my body? What's this doing to just like the way I feel, how might there be synesthetic effects between the air that has been inhaled and the bacteria I'm looking at that emitted that air, Um that I I think I frame in terms of conviviality, right? So thinking about interspecies life happening already within our bodies and smell as a kind of vehicle of intimacy and not just um, kind of harm. And then in the case of um, the fifth chapter titled Decolonizing Smell, I look at um, how, so for example, with how K. Trask and uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer how they think about smell, not only as, you know, the stench of colonialism as Trask calls it, but also as um, the kind of like pungent and divine indigenous like forms of the indigenous landscape, right? Um, Non-human forms ranging from like some of her references are to Miley vines, to the wind, the smell of the wind, um, lizards, and geological features, right? Um, So the smell of rock musk is another of her examples. Um, And and these examples that I think like decolonize smell both by uh, providing instances of indigenous smells that gesture towards a different possible smellscape, right? A smellscape that has, has persisted despite settler colonialism's attempts to eradicate it. Um, and to deodorize it. Um, and yeah, I, I feel like there was a both and, but I'm going to skip the and there and, and move on to Robin Wall Kimmerer, um, <laughs> who right. kind of recuperates smell, or, or not quite recuperates, but just like really thinks through um, because this knowledge has always already been there, right? Um, thinks through smell as something that, in in the example of sweetgrass, right, calls humans to harvest the sweet grass in particular responsible ways, ways that are aligned by, um, indigenous stories about sweet grass as the hair of mother earth. Right. Um, so to harvest it in responsible ways that actually, uh, enhance the ways that sweet grass grows back. So it grows back stronger. Right. And so smell is this kind of interspecies communicative medium that, um, has kind of, I mean, I guess one could say evolved right between humans and sweetgrass in order to produce, you know, uh, a kind of like not just odor, but a material of ceremony and basket weaving for for humans and also so that the humans could provide this kind of responsible harvesting for the sweetgrass. Um, So that's another mode of kind of decolonial thinking about smell that um, that really struck me
2: all right well that was great you just like took care of several additional questions that i've been (laughs) going to ask and you just like covered them really well there Uh, oh no don't don't (laughs) apologize no that's that's great you you said everything that i wanted you to talk about without me having to ask um but i do then want to ask about the the cover image on the book which is kind of a, a interesting image here that we're we're in this kind of you know blank white art gallery type space and you've got a a person dressed all in black standing on this folding ladder with their head inside this like cloud-shaped thing that's hanging from the ceiling so could you kind of explain what's going on here on uh on the cover and how does this you know capture what's in the book
3: Great, Um, thanks for asking about it. So this cover is, uh, I think, a really striking artwork. And I mean, in a way it's only part of the striking artwork because it's an olfactory artwork um, by the uh, olfactory artist, Peter de Cupera. um, And it's called Smoke Cloud. And he exhibited it about a decade ago at the Havana Biennale um, in Cuba where he said that he wanted the, the smell of, or I guess I should pause and say that inside the uh, cloud, maybe I'll just describe the whole thing. So it's a kind of like dramatically lit ladder under a kind of sculpted cloud. It looks kind of cottony material suspended from the ceiling. Um, and viewers or breathers ascend the ladder one at a time, right? If they want to. And inside the cloud is the smell of um, air pollution, right? The kind of uh, kind of smell that uh, Decoupera designed to evoke the scent of air pollution, I should say. Um, and so, it's it's kind of doing a lot of things that I find really interesting. Partly the kind of contrast between the visual installation and the olfactory experience, which when you're experiencing it, actually your head is inside this cloud sculpture, so you don't really see much. Um, I also really like the way that it incorporates the breather's body into the installation, right? So the ladder with the cloud wouldn't actually look like that interesting without a body kind of like connecting them. um, Standing on the ladder, there's also like a dramatization of risk, right? Not only in the smell of smog, but also the idea that like this heady scent might make one fall off the ladder. Um, And yeah, I I think that it really kind of gets at the, the sort of way in which embodied experience is happening with a certain kind of opacity, right? So where the breather's head is hidden and immersed in the cloud and people looking just don't know what is going on inside that breather's head and body. Um, so then, to go back to the context of the exhibition, um, he wanted the smell of air pollution to evoke the particularly intense, like smog and smoke that he he experienced in Havana, and that he connects to um, the Cold War embargo. Right, so there are all these old American clunker cars in Havana. Um, And that's the other kind of reason that I wanted to include it is it's really a reference or not just a reference, but an engagement with the transnational dynamics of American policies. Right. The way that, you know, U.S. Cold War policies not only created during the Cold War, but continue to kind of like result in um, dirty air in places that we would not think had that much to do environmentally. Or atmospherically with the U.S.
2: Okay, yeah, that's that's a, a sort of step up from some of the you know really boring covers that some academic books get. They have something that's such a you know a, a connection to what's going on in the book, and that I guess it's too bad they couldn't print it as a scratch and sniff so you could get the full experience of the uh, of the installation there from the I,
3: I totally book. asked but i think (laughs)
2: the the book would have cost too much okay well all right so to to wrap up here we always like to end by asking what you're working on next Uh, what kind of projects are you taking up now that this book is out
3: yes so um i'm doing i mean i'm just kind of getting started with new work but continuing to think about ways of perceiving the atmosphere um in sensory terms i'm I'm writing an essay, or I just recently completed an essay on thermoception, so the sense of temperature, as a way of sensing atmospheric disparities and focused on how Black writers and artists um, engage with connections between temperature, affect embodied experience. And I'm really interested in temperature, again, not just as a medium of damage, right? Um, Something that harms bodies and results in premature deaths, um, both heat and the lack of access to, you know, shade, tree canopy, air conditioning, and so forth. Um, But I'm also interested in temperature as a mode of affect and a kind of condition of knowledge, right? So a a sort of like thermally conditioned knowledge um, that results in, you know, different kinds of, of understandings of space and infrastructure and of climate change. Um, So one, I mean, one thing that I want to investigate in that book really is the urban heat island effect, um, right, which urban planners know all about, but which I think literary critics haven't um, really like thought about a whole lot. So I want to think about, you know, the literature, art and culture around the urban heat island effect and with a focus on um, black authored Text. So one, one example that comes to mind immediately would be Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, right? Which he said he wanted every single um, scene to, like, make the viewer sweat and to evoke, like, the hottest day of the year. Um, the other project I'm working on, which is very much related to that, is a kind of more public-facing book um, for the Bloomsbury Object Lessons series. Um, which is this great series edited by Christopher Schaeberg and Ian Bogos that thinks through the kind of social and cultural implications and embeddedness of everyday objects. So I'm writing one of those on air conditioning. And the reason I'm doing that is partly that air conditioning strikes me as like, fascinating as a kind of distributed object, right? An object we rarely, you know, mostly functions in the background of our lives and we notice it when we don't have access to it but would like access to it. Um, it's also been theorized in really powerful terms, right? So it kind of, it's a technology that co- like really opens onto a, a theory. So I'm thinking here of Peter Slaughter um, theorization of air conditioning as the ways that we condition the air in order to condition life. Right, so the differentiated air is a way to condition and differentiate life. I could say, um, and there I want to really focus on air conditioning in a framework of climate justice. Right, so again, centering the perspectives of people who have little access to it. Um, one example would be Mosin Hamid's moth smoke, right, where he says that Pakistan's population is has one like major divide, which is between the air conditioned and the great uncooled, right? The people who experience air conditioning from the outside of buildings as actually really hot because it's just emitting heat outwards Mm -hmm. um, towards them. And also, I I, I want that book to kind of um, really kind of intervene, I hope, in how, how we think about the Anthropocene by focusing on like what we could say not just would be not just climate justice but like justice at the level of microclimates right so air conditioners as a machine for creating differentiated microclimates on a variety of scales
2: all right well we will eagerly look forward to seeing the results of all that that all sounds really interesting so dr shu thank you so much for coming on the show
3: thanks dendr it was a pleasure
2: you just heard a conversation with Sean Shu, author of The Smell of Risk, Environmental Disparities and Olfactory Aesthetics, published this year by NYU Press.